0: This sermon, Redeemed to Enemies, was preached by Tim Lambros on Sunday, May twenty third, two 2021, at Sovereign Grace Church. One person said, James, a letter could be titled, In Your Face, and there's going to be more of that today. Derek mentioned last week that he likes to take a passage of Scripture and kind of put two handles on it, and then he violated that practice and put three handles on last week. But simple... Serious and hope. And today it's gonna to be a deep dive on the seriousness of what we saw last week. Uh, there's gonna be plenty of hope, but it's gonna be a deep dive on the seriousness of what James is bringing to this these churches and to us by extension. So let's stand and let's read verses four through 10. I think in my notes I put three, but the, the, these are much more connected than I initially thought, so that's probably a good... Uh, mistake there. Starting in verse 4, James, the ever-skillful pastor, speaks to the churches and to us under the inspiration of God like this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Please take your seats while I pray. Lord, what we need now, what we ask of you now, what we know you're more than willing to give is your active presence of the Spirit. Uh, Lord, we need this every Sunday, but we especially need it with direct words that are coming today. Lord, we pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit. For me, the one privileged to preach, and all of us as active listeners to you. Be active in our midst is our prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, I've always enjoyed talking to people that are first getting a taste of the church, whether that's after the first week and a request for coffee or multiple weeks and some hospitality. Timing isn't really important, but I've always enjoyed talking to people and drawing them out and asking them if they're experiencing Jesus in our midst and so forth. And one, a couple phone calls stand out over the years. One was very interesting, and I called uh, the home, and the wife answered the phone, and I remember her being more talkative on the Sundays that she was here, and we got to talking about uh, the church and her experience of it and so forth, and I said, well, how, how is your husband and your son doing in their experience of the church? And she said this, well, they're unregenerated believers, First, it caught me off guard. Well, Okay, I think I know what she means. I asked a couple questions, and she said, well, you know, if you talk to them, they'll say, I believe in God. Uh, If you ask them questions, they'll say, oh, I believe that. But based upon their life, based upon their fruit, based upon uh, a a lack of a born-again experience from her perspective, of course, she said, I believe they're unregenerated, unregenerated believers. okay. That introduced a new category to me. Thought Theologically, I can see that happening. We live in America, everyone's a Christian, right? But not everyone has been regenerated. Well, James introduces a new category. Uh, redeemed people, people have been born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, people that have been saved by the transforming work of Jesus Christ and drift and fall in a place that they are at war. They are enemies of God relationally. That's what we're gonna unpack today, and there's some strong warnings here because any one of us, although I wouldn't say this is a huge problem, but more of a preparatory sermon, more of getting you equipped and ready to spot this in our church, certainly not a... Huge concern of the pastoral team. But there's always pockets of this that we can drift into very quickly. But I want to unpack redeemed enemies. That's my first point. Then we're gonna see, if you're a note taker, second point, redemption displayed. Third point, redemption lived. But let's look at this idea of being a redeemed enemy. James When I first read this, I thought we were shifting to a new topic because James does not apologize for shifting quickly, but it is very much connected to the first three verses. He says in verse four, you adulterous people. Now, sometimes because God has chosen to reveal himself through the written word, we can miss some passion and depth and seriousness because it's on a printed page. You cannot go to Galatians chapter one and read that casually. It's not like James is saying, hey churches, hope all is well. Oh, by the way, you've kind of drifted from the gospel. No, James is saying, grace and peace to you. I am astonished that you have drifted from the gospel. That would be an appropriate way to hear that kind of passion coming from Paul. We heard a little bit of this In James chapter three, verse 10, when Paul was talking about unbridled tongues, when he says, that should not be, he's not saying, hey, it shouldn't be that way. He's saying, that should not be. And what is important to see here in our text when he says, you adulterous people, James up to this, no less than six or seven times has intentionally and skillfully said, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, beloved ones. And with this shift, it should get our attention. James is in our face. You adulterous people. What's he getting at here? James is using an Old Testament metaphor to get at the seriousness of his point. The Old Testament prophets frequently compared the relationship of God to his people like a marriage relationship. And so before, he talked about a brotherly relationship, him and these churches. Now he's talking about this vertical relationship and accusing them of being an adulterous people. What's going on? I mean, in one sense, you can be like, well, James, okay, you know, we had a few spats, a little disagreements. Yes, look at my heart. That's the sort, I get it. How did you go from that to now we're committing adult? That's a serious accusation, James. Well, it is serious because when you think theologically about what we heard, the passions within, the cravings that we have Speak to idols in our heart that enslave us. Now we're in the violation of the first commandment arena. You shall have no other gods before you. It is serious. When idols rule the hearts, God is on the sideline, and we are adulterers for sure. James is serious and Appropriately so, he should have our attention. And then he follows with a rhetorical question that he answers You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The church looked like the world. They had the poison of partiality, as we saw. And even before that, they were hearers but not doers of the word. There was selfish ambition. There was jealousy. There was unbridled tongues. They were friends of the world because they looked like the world. They had friendship with the world because there was no distinction between them and the world. And so naturally, quarrels and fights would come up forward this word enmity is a strong word it means to be at war friendship with the world looking like the world embracing the world's system embracing the world's values means you are at war with god even if you are a bloodbought christian you are now a redeemed enemy of god and all of us can drift there very quickly All of us may have pockets of this in our life right now where certain aspects of our life are at war with God because we have embraced this world's system. Listen, if you look and live like this world, if you quack like a duck, you're a duck. There's no distinction between you and this world. How many of us know John 3:16? "For God so loved the world, for God so loved this world with all of its anti-God systems and values and priorities. For God so loved this world that He gave His Son to redeem this fallen world." Minimally, this world ignores God as if He isn't here. And many times this world is directly hostile to God in its values. Priorities and activities. A couple of texts to see what the scripture talks about this world. John fourteen thirty, Jesus tells his disciples, The ruler of this world is coming. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Long after Jesus ascended to heaven. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Galatians 1, 4. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. 1 John five nineteen. the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Douglas Moo writes, when believers behave in a worldly manner, they demonstrate that at that point, their allegiance is to the world rather than to God. In our world, some of those values show up as independence. This world loves independence. This world loves reputation. Build your brand, brother. That's a high value. Materialism, status, etc. These are some of the world. Listen, most of you are not going to do battle with Satan himself. Probably all of you. All of you. But daily we're going to do battle with these demonic influences from this present evil age. Alex Motier writes, God's people are indwelt by God's spirit, and there is no way in which the living presence of that spirit is compatible with those sinful yearnings and promptings to self-interest which are destructive of the peace of the church, that, what, that is what this church was struggling with. And the reason it's serious is because underneath these passions and conflicts that rule our heart is this idolatry and God is on the sideline. And you go deeper in idolatry and it's all about me and what I want. So it's a kingdom of self against the kingdom of God. And God will not have any part of that, as we'll see in just a moment That's why he poses another rhetorical question. Look at your text again. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He yearns jealously. God so loved each and every member of these churches that are reading this letter. God so loves each and every member of you that are here, that are born again and call yourself a Christian, of experiencing the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. God has given you His Spirit to take up residence in your hearts, but He will not have a divided kingdom in your hearts. There is only one allegiance, and God is a jealous God, just like we can even understand in our imperfectly loved relationships, when you discover a spouse has committed adultery, there is a good and right and godly jealousy that will rise up. That's just part of a relationship that deep. But of course, God's jealousy is not like ours. Ours too quickly becomes a bitter jealousy that was mentioned in chapter three which says it's earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic, because it has self at the middle of it. God has his glory and his grandeur at the middle of his jealousy of every born-again believer that has his spirit in him. We can commit adultery and be enemies of God as born-again we're going to heaven, that's secure, but in our relationship, we can drift to a place where you are at war with God. That's serious. Here's the point that I took away this week. God is not unaffected by our worldliness. God is affected in our drift to this cursed and fallen world's values. You see, last week, we learned where to look for the source of these conflicts, for the source of these difficulties in relationships, these passions and cravings within. Here, now we're seeing how God sees our friendship with the world. Now we get a peek into how does God think and feel about our drift and our jealousy our, our our drift to the world and his jealousy god is not unaffected god is affected by our drift and our embracing of this world's values he'll have nothing to do with it And then in one of those great, great three-letter words, verse six starts with, but. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. It would be appropriate for the next verse to say, get your act together, Christian. But what do we hear from a, God that is holy and yet personal. He says, God gives more grace. Alex Motier again, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect to our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and more to give he always has more and more to give. I tried to think of a picture this week, and I thought of Niagara Falls. Anybody been to Niagara Falls? Anybody? a few? I looked, and sure enough, there's a live camera. Of course, it doesn't capture the grandeur and the beauty of it, but I asked the question: Where does all that water? Come from. It's never ending going over the falls. And in a created way, it's a great object lesson. God never stops his supply of grace, he gives more grace. As equally as serious as this is, this should be stunning. There's more grace in God to give than there is sin and worldliness in my life. That gives me hope. I was thinking about this this week. Brings chills to my soul when I ponder my life. You see, for 20 years when I was running my hellbound race I experienced common grace. At age 18, I told my parents I was going to hitchhike from Phoenix to Fort Wayne, Indiana. I didn't ask them. I told them because I was a fool. I could have been dead. I could have been, and kids don't even think about this. It's a very different age right now than 1978. Very different. Do not do this at home. And God gave me undeserving common grace. A couple years later, I experienced the transformation grace. God saved my soul. God intervened in my hell-bound race. I was going over a cliff, and God plucked me from that life and put me on the solid rock of the finished work of Jesus Christ and transformed me into one of his own. I experienced saving grace, different than common grace. And as I pondered that this year, having been a believer for 40 years, I have experienced 40 years of sanctifying, persevering, undeserved grace from God. And it just racks my brain to think if I were to drift into Worldliness and be at war with God, he wouldn't be up there. Tim, I have given you so much grace. What? He doesn't get frustrated with us. He gives more grace. So a little application seems appropriate here. I don't know if you're like me. But when someone comes to tell me I'm being worldly or concerned about a worldly pursuit, I'm typically like this. Hey, thanks for bringing that to me. I know I'm blinded to my own blindedness, and I don't see things clearly. Please keep confronting me about my worldliness and self-serving ways that lead to idolatry and adultery of this God. That's how I typically do it. I'm sure you do the same thing, right? No, no. <laughs> Here's what happens. Now, I've been around 40 years, so I look good on the outside. Mm, mm yeah, good. Oh, yeah, th- oh thank, yeah, thank. But on the inside, it's like, we're going to DEFCON 5. We're at war. Get ready for war. And at the same time, we're raising the, the war with this courageous friend or spouse bringing a simple observation, we get the lawyers going. And I've been around enough that I got three of them. Some people have an inner attorney. I got three of them. See, the first one is dialed into every example. And they're nitpicking. They're, they're, they're basically gonna go to the judge. This is inadmissible. That's, that's the first lawyer. The second lawyer, he's listening. He's listening, but... He's historically gonna dismiss all these two for other reasons. But the third lawyer, you gotta be around a lot to get this good. See, the third inner lawyer is building up all my righteous acts because see, as a believer, if I have 10 righteous acts against these two or three examples, I mean, come on, let's get over it, you know. That's what we do. And yet in light of what we just read, he gives more grace. It's no It totally makes sense. Look at the next sentence. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And yet you can be 40 years experiencing all this grace. No, there's a Niagara Falls wellspring of grace ready for you. And you go to war when someone brings something. They're not even convinced of sin, they're just asking you to pray about it. We do that because we're not convinced of grace. We do that because we're not convinced of the character of God. Church, I I did that live camera and just let the Niagara Falls thing go at my desk like a sound spa. It just was such a good reminder that we serve a God who has more grace to give us. So why do we want to oppose why do we want God to oppose us when he gives grace to the humble? And the rest of this passage is gonna be what humility looks like. The rest of this is very practical application. But humility looks like turning from, we a couple songs this morning had that idea in there, turning from this worldly pursuit and putting our eyes on Jesus like we talked about today. That's repentance. Humility and repentance cannot be separated. And just one, one, one more thought that, that was so helpful. I think I got this from um, Gentle and Lowly, the book. I think we, first of all, don't understand how big the wellspring of grace is. It's the very character of God to give. For God so loved the world that he gave, and he came, kept giving to Tim Lambros, and he keeps giving to you. He gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he doesn't get exhausted or frustrated. We need to let that sink in. And secondly, I don't think we understand. Jesus gets joy. For the joy set before him, he went to the cross so he can give, and he can give, and he can give. That needs to be in our face as much as the accusation of adultery. Jesus, when we pursue him, when we turn from those worldly pursuits, sometimes we're blinded to him, sometimes we're actively doing it, and we put our eyes on Jesus, he loves giving grace. He loves giving sanctification grace. But James, the very skillful pastor, he's going to leave no stone unturned. He's going to get very specific on what this looks like. And this next verse, submit yourselves therefore to God, is a little bit of the organizing verse for the rest of it. If you look closely, there's no less than 10 commands in here. But we're going to find some amazing pockets of hope in the most unusual places so the organizing thought here is submit yourselves to God we're adulterating our relationship to God there's not room for two gods in us and now he's saying submit yourselves therefore to God and let me just pause here for a moment listen If I'm a redeemed believer at war with God, you don't just snap a finger and switch gears and submit to God. It is a work of the spirit. You're not exonerated because we bring the humility. God gives us the turn, but listen, I love the title of this Puritan's most famous message, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Affection. Let me say that again. There's expulsive, there's power in a new affection. And when you turn and you go, wait a minute, I heard a message one time in James that he gives more grace and that affection rises up in the character of God and in the blood of Jesus Christ. You now have turned and repented and you're stirring up a new affection versus whatever I idolized and believed and adulterated that this worldly way was gonna give me. A little dissection of that turning, if you will. So James is gonna give specific application under this. Therefore, submit yourself to God. And helpfully here, there's like three little duets, two sides of one coin, couplets, if you will. So you got the organizing sentence, the very last sentence, we'll wrap it up. And in between, you have three little couplets, you, you might will, that we're gonna look at. So we know Jesus has a super abundant supply of grace, but there are commands to obey. There are commands to obey. Again, Alex Motier Nails this, in the same way he does not see the inexhaustible supply of grace as sweeping us along to an effortless holiness. He knows of no such easy victory. The benefits of grace and more grace are ours along the road of obedience and more obedience. The God who says, here is my grace to receive, picture Niagara Falls, says in the same breath, here are my commands to obey. Much grace, God's people, unlike what James is concerned about, unlike when we get worldly, are obedient people. And that's how we get in line. That's how we get in position for this waterfall of grace. So the expulsive power of a new affection starts with Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Why would I not submit myself right now when I've been confronted with my adultery and my worldliness to God? So here's the first of the three little couplets here, okay? He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I'm sorry, for the first side of the coin. Resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you listen we all know what you resist you get less of it do you want to quit eating donuts certain senior pastors you've got to resist that urge for that sugar and you'll get less of it we know it works with food We know it works in other areas too But he says, resist the devil. Well, for most of it, it's going to be the devil's corruption of this world, the values, the, 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 the priorities, and, and so forth. And listen, the, the, the devil is a crafty and persistent foe, certainly to be respective, but he's a defeated foe. We don't want to be improperly fearing him. At the cross... He was defeated. <coughs> so make sure we see this. This is where these little pockets of hope come in. As a born-again believer, indwelt by the Spirit, you can actually make the devil and these worldly influences flee. Please see that in there. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the values of this world, resist the priorities of this world, and they will flee from you. Did you get that? Now look at the other side. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It just seems like it's sitting there in the middle of 10 commands, but this brings so much hope. Listen, church, the offended, jealous God finds you in bed with the world. Humanly speaking, that would be a devastating experience. And he says, draw near to me, and I will draw near. That is stunning grace. I can't even think of an adjective to be appropriate. You have experienced common grace, saving grace, sanctifying grace, and you find yourself adopting, embracing, consumed, idolizing this world's values. And God comes and says, therefore, submit yourself to me, draw near, and I'll That is a wellspring of hope. So a little more application, how do we draw near to God? A Couple of things here that you're aware of. You open up your Bible. We draw near to God with very normal and simple means of grace. You put yourself in the waterfall, the Niagara Falls of grace by opening your Bible. If you only open it once or twice a week, you try daily. If you read a brief passage, you read longer. You open up your Bible, whether that's in the morning, at lunchtime, or at night, but you relate with God over his word because it's alive. You make Sundays a priority. You put them on the calendar, and you fiercely guard gathering with your local church because there's a unique type of grace you're gonna come under. You guard intensely your community group You don't let it easily go off the calendar because I'm tired, I had a rough day. I don't like my community group leader. The guy next to me bugs me all the time. No, no, no. You're coming under the Niagara Falls. I I, I probably can't do this, but illustratively, you're coming under the waterfall of grace. You're positioning yourself. And one that's often overlooked, you serve. You serve other people. Because you experience grace when you position yourself to give yourself. That's what James is concerned. If you have selfish ambition and jealousy, you're not giving yourself away a distinctive feature of God's people and especially the church. You do hospitality in your home. You live a life as if this world's values just can't get any traction on you. So Jesus draws near to us and promises that he, if we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. That's the first one. The second one is, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Douglas Moo writes, clearly he sees his readers as both Christian and in need of a wake-up call that will bring home to them the seriousness of their departure from godly attitudes and behavior. James is in your face. Remember the wisdom passage? How do you know a wise person? By his conduct, his godly attitudes and his behavior. Listen, we get dirty in the world. We we put our hands to the plow. They do get dirty. We're not talking about perfection here, but... James is saying, cleanse your hands of these earthly pursuits. They're vile, they're of the devil. And then he says, purify your hearts, drawing language from the priesthood. Go before the Lord and do an evaluation of what I'm putting my hands to, what my hearts are believing and idolizing and worshiping is what he's getting at here. And I might note He's not talking about a categorical separation from the world. No, we're to live in this world, but not be of this world, not embracing its values, not embracing its priorities and activities. That's the Christian life until he comes again. And then in verse 9, he says, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, taken at face value, that can, actually, some Christians would like that. We should be sober all the time, quiet, stoic. There's no place for laughter in this fallen world. That's not what he's getting at. I mean, after all, this is the guy that opened up and said, let it count it pure joy when you have adversity. And you're like, what? what? That's the last time I want to be joyful. No, he's not categorically saying there's no room for joy. The Christian life is joyful. He's not categorically saying there's no room for laughter. But in light of the context, in light of a church that has drifted and does not look distinctly like the people of God, looks way too much like the world, he says, turn that laughter to grieving. You are adulterous, People and it's serious. This is not a time for laughter. This is a time for evaluation. This is a time to submit yourselves to God. This is a time of turning and repenting and crying out to God for new affections. So, in its right context, yeah, we should mourn and weep. We should quit laughing about our state and turn that to mourning. Very appropriate. Expression of humility that James is calling the church. And then he wraps it up again. Another uh, amazing thing humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Go, Go back to jealousy and selfish ambition, quarreling and fighting. What's at the middle of all that? Self. If I'm jealous of something, I want something I don't have. If I've got envy, if I've got uh, uh, worldly desires that I don't have, that's about me. God will have no place for that. And then yet James says, to our astonishment, humble yourselves before the Lord. And what will he do? He'll exalt you. It's the very thing we as Christians want. Not in a worldly way, but in God's economy. We all want to be exalted. We all want to be edified. We all want to be rightly thinking about God in this life. But it comes through the pathway of humility, or going back up, it goes through the pathway of submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Plenty of application here, but just a couple things that you might throw in in addition to this practical application from verses 7 through 10. A couple easy questions. Where, where have I drifted? Where have I drifted into embracing, loving, idolizing these worldly ways? Where does my life look like the world? There's no distinction that I'm a believer. Then here's one that would certainly need to get more people involved in, but look back over the last year, last six months, pick a time frame and ask yourself in the Lord, am I more of a friend of God now, drawing near, or a friend of the world? Am I more of a friend of God Am I drawing near to God more regularly? Or am I a friend of the world? Evaluation before the Lord is appropriate with the strong of a accusation that James brings to those churches and to us.